This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. King Solomon's Mines by L. Ryder Haggard Chapter 19 Ignosi's Farewell Ten days from that eventful morning found us once more in our old quarters at Loo, and strange to say, but little the worse for our terrible experience, except that my stubby hair came out of the treasure cave about three shades grayer than it went in, and that good never was quite the same after Fulata's death, which seemed to move him very greatly. I am bound to say, looking at the thing from the point of view of an oldish man of the world, that I consider her removal was a fortunate occurrence, since otherwise complications would have been sure to ensue. The poor creature was no ordinary native girl, but a person of great, I had almost said stately, beauty, and of considerable refinement of mind. But no amount of beauty or refinement could have made an entanglement between Good and herself a desirable occurrence, for, as she herself put it, can the sun mate with the darkness, or the white with the black. I need hardly state that we never again penetrated into Solomon's treasure chamber. After we had recovered from our fatigue, a process which took us forty-eight hours, we descended into the great pit in the hope of finding the hole by which we had crept out of the mountain, but with no success. To begin with, rain had fallen and obliterated our spoor, and what is more, the sides of the vast pit were full of ant bear and other holes. It was impossible to say to which of these we owed our salvation. Also, on the day before we started back to Loo, we made a further examination of the wonders of the stalactite cave, and drawn by a kind of restless feeling, even penetrated once more into the chamber of the dead. Passing beneath the spear of the white death, we gazed with sensations which it would be quite impossible for me to describe at the mass of rock that had shut us off from escape thinking the while of priceless treasures beyond, of the mysterious old hag whose flattened fragments lay crushed beneath it, and of the fair girl of whose tomb it was the portal. I say gazed at the rock, for examine as we could, we could find no traces of the join of the sliding door, nor indeed could we hit upon the secret now utterly lost, that worked it, though we tried for an hour or more. It is certainly a marvelous bit of mechanism, characteristic in its massive and yet inscrutable simplicity of the age which produced it, and I doubt if the world has such another to show. At last we gave it up in disgust, though if the mass had suddenly risen before our eyes, I doubt if we should have screwed up courage to step over Gagool's mangled remains and once more enter the treasure chamber, even in the sure and certain hope of unlimited diamonds. 
and yet I could have cried at the idea of leaving all that treasure, the biggest treasure probably that in the world's history has ever been accumulated in one spot. But there was no help for it, only dynamite could force its way through five feet of solid rock. So we left it. Perhaps in some remote, unborn century a more fortunate explorer may hit upon the open sesame and flood the world with gems. But myself, I doubt it. Somehow I seem to feel that the tens of millions of pounds worth of jewels which lie in the three stone coffers will never shine round the neck of an earthly beauty. They and Fulata's bones will keep cold company till the end of all things. With a sigh of disappointment we made our way back, and next day started for Lou. And yet it was really very ungrateful of us to be disappointed, for as the reader will remember, by a lucky thought, I had taken the precaution to fill the wide pockets of my old shooting coat and trousers with gems before we left our prison house, also Fulata's basket, which held twice as many more, notwithstanding that the water bottle had occupied some of its space. A good many of these fell out in the course of our roll down the side of the pit, including several of the big ones, which I had crammed in on the top in my coat pockets. But comparatively speaking, an enormous quantity still remained, including ninety-three large stones, ranging from over two hundred to seventy carats in weight. My old shooting coat and the basket still held sufficient treasure to make us all, if not millionaires, as the term is understood in America, at least exceedingly wealthy men, and yet to keep enough stones each to make the three finest sets of gems in Europe. So we had not done so badly. On arriving at Lou, we were most cordially received by Ignosi, whom we found well and busily engaged in consolidating his power and reorganizing the regiments which had suffered most in the great struggle with Twala. He listened with intense interest to our wonderful story. But when we told him of old Gagool's frightful end, he grew thoughtful. Come hither, he called to a very old Induna, or counsellor, who was sitting with others in a circle round the king, but out of earshot. The ancient man rose, approached, saluted, and seated himself. "'Thou art aged,' said Ignosi. "'I, my lord, the king, thy father's father, and I were born on the same day. "'Tell me,' When thou wast little, did thou knowest Gagool the witch doctress? Ay, my lord the king. How was she then? Young like thee? Not so, my lord the king. She was even as she is now, as she was in the days of my great grandfather before me, old and dried, very ugly, and full of wickedness. She is no more. She is dead. So, O king, then is an ancient curse taken from the land. Go. Kum, 
I go, black puppy, who tore out the old dog's throat. Cum. Ye see, my brothers, said Ignosi, this was a strange woman, and I rejoice that she is dead. She would have let you die in the dark place, and mayhap afterwards she had found a way to slay me, as she found a way to slay my father, and set up Twala, whom her black heart loved, in his place. Now go on with the tale. Surely there never was its like. After I had narrated all the story of our escape, as we had agreed between ourselves that I should, I took the opportunity to address Ignosi as to our departure from Kukuanalan. And now, Ignosi, I said, the time has come for us to bid thee farewell and start to see our own land once more. Behold, Ignosi, thou camest with us a servant, and now we leave thee a mighty king. If thou art grateful to us, Remember to do even as thou didst promise, to rule justly, to respect the law, and to put none to death without a cause. So shalt thou prosper. Tomorrow, at the break of day, Ignosi, thou wilt give us an escort who shall lead us across the mountains. Is it not so, O king? Ignosi covered his face with his hands for a while before answering. My heart is sore, he said at last. Your words split my heart in twain. What have I done to you, Inkubu, Makumazan, and Buguan, that ye should leave me desolate? Ye who stood by me in rebellion and in battle, will ye leave me in the day of peace and victory? What will ye, wives? Choose from among the maidens. A place to live in? Behold, the land is yours as far as ye can see. The white men's houses? Ye shall teach my people how to build them. Cattle for beef and milk? Every married man shall bring you an ox or a cow. Wild game to hunt? Does not the elephant walk through my forests, and the river horse sleep in the reeds? Would ye make war? My impies wait your word. If there is anything more which I can give, that will I give you. Nay, Ignosi, we want none of these things, I answered. We would seek our own place. Now do I learn, said Ignosi bitterly and with flashing eyes, that ye love the bright stones more than me, your friend. Ye have the stones, now ye would go to Natal and across the moving black water and sell them, and be rich, as it is the desire of a white man's heart to be. Cursed for your sake be the white stones, and cursed he who seeks them. Death shall it be to him who sets foot in the place of death to find them. I have spoken. White men, ye can go. 
I laid my hand upon his arm. Ignosi, I said, tell us, when thou didst wander in Zululand and among the white people of Natal, did not thine heart turn to the land thy mother told thee of, thy native place, where thou didst see the light, and play when thou wast little, the land where thy place was? It was even so, Macumazahn. In like manner, Ignosi, do our hearts turn to our land and to our own place. Then came a silence. When Ignosi broke it, it was in a different voice. I do perceive that now as ever thy words are wise and full of reason, Macumazahn. That which flies in the air loves not to run along the ground. The white man loves not to live on the level of the black or to house among his corrals. Well, ye must go and leave my heart sore, because ye will be as dead to me, since from where ye are no tidings can come to me. But listen, and let all your brothers know my words. No other white man shall cross the mountains, even if any man live to come so far. I will see no traitors with their guns and gin. My people shall fight with the spear and drink water like their forefathers before them. I will have no praying men to put a fear of death into men's hearts, to stir them up against the law of the king and make a path for the white folk who follow to run on. If a white man comes to my gates, I will send him back. If a hundred come, I will push them back. If armies come... I will make war on them with all my strength, and they shall not prevail against me. None shall ever seek for the shining stones, no, not an army. For if they come, I will send a regiment and fill up the pit, and break down the white columns in the caves, and choke them with rocks, so that none can reach even to that door of which ye speak, and whereof the way to move it is lost." But for you three, Inkabu, Makumazan, and Buguan, the path is always open. For behold, ye are nearer to me than aught that breathes, and ye would go. Infarus, my uncle, and my Unduna shall take you by the hand and guide you with a regiment. There is, as I have learned, another way across the mountains that he shall show you. Farewell, my brothers, brave white men. See me no more, for I have no heart to bear it. Behold, I make a decree, and it shall be published from the mountains to the mountains. Your names, Inkabu, Makumazan, and Buguan, shall be Hlonipa, even as the names of dead kings and he who speaks them shall die. So shall your memory be preserved in the land forever. Note, this extraordinary and negative way of showing intense respect is by no means unknown among African people, and the result is that if, as is usual, the name in question has a significance, the meaning must be expressed by an idiom or other word. 
In this way a memory is preserved for generations, or until the new word utterly supplants the old. Go now, ere my eyes rain tears like a woman's. At times, as you look back down the path of life, or when you are old and gather yourselves together to crouch before the fire, because for you the sun has no more heat, ye will think of how we stood shoulder to shoulder in that great battle which thy wise words planned, Macumazahn, of how thou wast the point of the horn that galled Twala's flank, Buguan, whilst thou stood in the ring of the greys, Inkubu, and men went down before thine axe like corn before a sickle. Ay, and of how thou didst break that wild bull Twala's strength, and bring his pride to dust. Fare ye well forever, Inkibu, Macumazan, and Buguan, my lords and my friends. Ignosi rose and looked earnestly at us for a few seconds. Then he threw the corner of his cross over his head, so as to cover his face from us. We went in silence. Next day at dawn we left Lou, escorted by our old friend Infadus, who was heartbroken at our departure, and by the regiment of buffaloes. Early as was the hour, all the main street of the town was lined with multitudes of people who gave us the royal salute as we passed at the head of the regiment, while the women blessed us for having rid the land of Twala, throwing flowers before us as we went. It was really very affecting, and not the sort of thing one is accustomed to meet with from natives. One ludicrous incident occurred, however, which I rather welcomed, as it gave us something to laugh at. Just before we reached the confines of the town, a pretty young girl, with some lovely lilies in her hand, ran forward and presented them to Good. Somehow they all seemed to like Good. I think his eyeglass and solitary whisker gave him a fictitious value. And then said that she had a boon to ask. Speak on, he answered. Let my lord show his servant his beautiful white legs, that his servant may look upon them, and remember them all her days, and tell of them to her children. His servant has travelled four days' journey to see them, for the fame of them has gone throughout the land. I'll be hanged if I do, exclaimed Good excitedly. Come, come, my dear fellow, said Sir Henry. "'You can't refuse to oblige a lady.' "'I won't,' replied Good obstinately. "'It is positively indecent.' "'However, in the end he consented to drop his trousers to the knee, "'amid notes of rapturous admiration from all the women present, "'especially the gratified young lady. "'And in this guise he had to walk till we got clear of the town.' Good's legs, I fear, will never be so greatly admired again. Of his melting teeth, and even of his transparent eye, the Kukuanas wearied more or less, but of his legs, never. As we traveled, Infidus told us that there was another pass over the mountains to the north of the one followed by Solomon's Great Road, or rather that there was a place where it was possible to climb down the wall of cliff,
which separates Kukuanaland from the desert, and is broken by the towering shapes of Sheba's breasts. It appeared also that rather more than two years previously a party of Kukuana hunters had descended this path into the desert in search of ostriches, whose plumes are much prized among them for war headdresses, and that in the course of their hunt they had been led far from the mountains and were much troubled by thirst. Seeing trees on the horizon, however, they walked towards them, and discovered a large and fertile oasis some miles in extent, and plentifully watered. It was by way of this oasis that Infidus suggested we should return, and the idea seemed to us a good one, for it appeared that we should thus escape the rigors of the mountain pass. Also some of the hunters were in attendance to guide us to the oasis, from which they stated they could perceive other fertile spots far away in the desert. Note, it often puzzled all of us to understand how it was possible that Ignosi's mother, bearing the child with her, should have survived the dangers of her journey across the mountains and the desert, dangers which so nearly proved fatal to ourselves. It has since occurred to me, and I give the idea to the reader for what it is worth, that she must have taken this second route, and wandered out like Hagar into the wilderness. If she did so, there is no longer anything inexplicable about the story, since, as Ignosi himself related, she may well have been picked up by some ostrich hunters before she or the child was exhausted, was led by them to the oasis, and thence by stages to the fertile country, and so on by slow degrees southwards to Zululand. Alan Quartermain Traveling easily, on the night of the fourth day's journey, we found ourselves once more on the crest of the mountains that separate Kukuana land from the desert, which rolled away in sandy billows at our feet, and about twenty-five miles to the north of Sheba's breasts. At dawn on the following day, we were led to the edge of a very precipitous chasm, by which we were to descend the precipice, and gain the plain two thousand and more feet below. Here we bade farewell to that true friend and sturdy old warrior, Infadus, who solemnly wished all good upon us, and nearly wept with grief. Never, my lords, he said, shall mine own eyes see the like of you again. Ah, the way that Inkibu cut his men down in the battle! Ah, for the sight of that stroke with which he swept off my brother Twala's head. It was beautiful, beautiful. I may never hope to see such another, except, perchance, in happy dreams. We were very sorry to part from him. Indeed, Good was so moved that he gave him as a souvenir, what do you think, an eyeglass. Afterwards we discovered that it was a spare one. Infidus was delighted, foreseeing that the possession of such an article would increase his prestige enormously, and after several vain attempts he actually succeeded in screwing it into his own eye. Anything more incongruous than the old warrior looked with an eyeglass I never saw. Eyeglasses do not go well with leopard-skin cloaks and black ostrich plumes, then, after seeing that our guides were well laden with water and provisions, 
and having received a thundering farewell salute from the buffaloes, we wrung Infadus by the hand and began our downward climb. A very arduous business it proved to be, but somehow that evening we found ourselves at the bottom without accident. "'Do you know,' said Sir Henry that night, as we sat by our fire and gazed up at the beetling cliffs above us, I think that there are worse places than Land in the world, and that I have known unhappier times than the last month or two, though I have never spent such queer ones. Eh, you fellows? I almost wish I were black, said Good with a sigh. As for myself, I reflected that all's well that ends well, but in the course of a long life of shaves, I never had such shaves as those which I recently experienced. The thought of that battle makes me feel cold all over, and as for our experience in the treasure chamber. Next morning we started on a toilsome trudge across the desert, having with us a good supply of water carried by our five guides, and camped that night in the open, marching again at dawn on the morrow. By noon of the third day's journey we could see the trees of the oasis of which the guide spoke, and within an hour of sundown we were walking once more upon grass and listening to the sound of running water. End of chapter 19